Hello there. Welcome back to another episode of Thought Architecture. If you don't know by now, I'm Justin. The uh, the only Justin that matters right now in the space. Ha 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 ha. Um, one of many, should we say. And uh, this is going to be episode three, technically, of the, the learning formula. And this is for the first step. So the previous audios that we did was part one, which is an overview of the formula. Part two, which was the introductory area, the pre-learning part. So if you want to hear those episodes, please go back to the episode lists and look for learning part one, learning part two. This is learning part three, and this is going to be the actual meat and potatoes of most learning, uh, without a doubt. And so the main thing that I'll dive into in this one is very simple. It's this concept um, of if we are trying to entrench something into the mind, familiarity of a procedure, a certain amount of information or whatever, then we have to go through this process of a deconstruction of all this information and then a reconstruction of all this information. The more that we can do that, the better we learn. It's that simple. Okay, so what does that what does that all mean? So deconstruction as in like if I'm learning a language and I learn a phrase, I'm able to piece apart all of the sounds of that phrase. I'm able to piece apart all of the meaning of the words that those sounds make up. And I'm able to translate them back into something that is already familiar. The deconstruction part, it, it sounds unnecessary if it's something that you can reproduce or you can reconstruct it. But deconstruction is more essential than you would think. So for example, um, if I told you that even if you look within the word sovereignty, right, sovereign is considered to be um, you know, a word used to describe royalty. You've got the word reign in there, as in the royalty rules. Their reign, for example, R-E-I-G-N. That word is in sovereign, even though the pronunciation isn't, isn't the same. So that's something that just by peeling it apart, maybe it's got no connection to the meaning, but the very simple concept is it'll help me to remember the, uh, the spelling, for example. So we can do this with almost anything. You can do it with words, languages, pieces of information, its connections to other things. The more you can deconstruct, and especially in deconstructing in meaningful ways, the faster you can actually learn. So the deconstruction phase becomes almost um, paramount to our learning. Because if it's already something that we're familiar with, we don't need to deconstruct it. We can just take it on board and repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. The deconstruction phase actually allows us to build schema by patterning things together in more detail, in more depth. So if we go through like a pre-learning phase, we typically go through our perceptions and our patterning. And we're patterning, we're trying to find, does this look similar to something that I've seen before? And if the answer is no, it's usually because we need to break it down a lot further. And so this is the second layer or the, the fine tuning of the learning process where we break something down by looking at all of the parts that make it up. So the first step of this is going to be hierarchy. Now, when I describe hierarchy, I actually describe a few different things. And so it works like this. Number one is, what are the big pieces down to what are the small pieces, macro to micro. So if we're talking about a language, um, we could talk about an entire language turn of speaking, which has multiple sentences, okay? We can talk about an individual sentence. We can talk about a group of words or a phrase that we see, and then we can also talk about a word, an individual word. 
We can even break it down further and say groups of sounds like, you know, expensive, X being one, you know, one syllable. Then putting them together makes a word. Putting a word together with a group creates like extremely expensive. Great. And then the verb to be, it is uh, to be extremely expensive. And then after that, construct it up. So there is this, this hierarchy that we can go through in terms of size. How big is it versus how small is it? And usually breaking it down to smaller components is good, but staying focused on the component size that you need to stay on is important as well. Like you can break a particular athletic movement down to the nth degree if you really wanted to, but how much of that is really going to serve the need of you being able to reproduce that particular skill or act action? So hierarchy works in terms of that. Hierarchy also works in terms of which part is the most valuable? So if you're going to implement, you know, that, uh, what is it, Pareto's principle or Parkinson's law? No, Pareto's principle, the 80-20 principle. Well, like, what is the 20% that's going to give you 80% of your results? Well, that's going to be determined through hierarchy because you basically value everything. On a scale of 1 to 10, everything in the sentence, which is most important. So if I say it is very extremely expensive, uh, the word expensive is going to be valued at, let's say, an 8 out of 10, whereas it is you know, like those words are a 1 out of 10, a 2 out of 10, and extremely, I would give it a 5 out of 10 to say how expensive it is. But ultimately, you can get by by just saying, oh, expensive, you know, with like big eyes and like surprise in your voice, and people would understand you. And so all of the extra little details are unnecessary, but they add value. They still add value, but what, how much value in contrast relatively to the other parts? So that is going to be the first uh, and second parts of hierarchy how big are the pieces how much valuable how much value do the pieces have and you can literally use this for anything uh, business offerings uh, studying something in university you know your deconstruction of this type of thing is very important now university of texas also has a particular protocol that they use a smart protocol where you go through and the more you can deconstruct something the better it is retained in the mind and the more you can start deleting extraneous details, literally. So if you think about Goldilocks and three bears, if you look at the big picture, the big picture is a story. Girl goes into a house, tries multiple different things, um, falls asleep, and eventually bears come home, scare her away. Great. If you, if you go into more detail, what are the things that she tries? Well, she tries the chairs. She breaks one. She tries the food. She eats one. She tries the beds. She sleeps in one. Bears come home. If we changed the beds, the chairs, the food for something else. Like, someone's been playing with my Xbox. Someone's been playing with my PS. Someone's been playing with my Nintendo, you know? That kind of thing. Um, does it still convey its message? I believe so. So you can delete the extraneous details. She tries a bunch of things. And then the bears come home and chase her away. One of the important details is that she falls asleep. And going from that, we can see... What is an important detail? What isn't? Okay. What is a major point and what isn't? So in big picture things, she tries a bunch of things. That's the main component of the story. Without her trying multiple things, we don't get the point of the story. Versus her falling asleep, that's a very small detail, but still important to the story. You know, So we can determine the size of something as well as its value to the story in relation to the story. Um, so literally, we can do this with Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Now, 
what comes up after that is also then can we condense it down? Can we reduce meaning? So Goldilocks and the Three Bears, it's a story about don't break and enter. From the bear's perspective, let's say, or from the lesson, if Goldilocks is the bad person, we can say, cool, breaking and entering is a bad thing. Versus if we say, um, from the Gold, from Goldilocks' perspective, it's the idea of don't give up. If you've tried something once and you don't like it, try the next thing, try the next thing, try the next thing, uh, until you get what you want. And so it could be a tale of inspiration and motivation. And so talking about all these things, um, it literally becomes this point of can you actually contract the meaning of something down, especially when you're trying to deconstruct it. The more you can contract it down, the better. So sprint, the word sprint is actually run plus fast. Those are two very easy concepts to get and you put them together. Cool. Gallop is maybe sprint plus horse. So again, I'm deconstructing a word in terms of its meaning. Okay. So deconstruction works like this. And the University of uh, Texas, their um, Brain Performance Institute, has done some very interesting research with regards to comprehension and how fast the brain can comprehend when we focus on these details. So that's the first part. It's called hierarchy. After that, we can talk about sequencing. So for example, having... Um, Goldilocks fall asleep right in the beginning mm, no bueno having having um, you know different parts of language be in the wrong order maybe it's le- you know we can understand it, it's comprehensible but it's not it's not advisable you know it's if it's out of sequence it usually can create problems so we have impeding and non-impeding errors like does this error actually stop the thing from functioning as a whole versus eh, it kind of doesn't. We recognize it's an error, but we can get past it. So impeding and non-impeding errors. And sequencing is an obvious place where we can find this. What needs to come first? So a spark plug in an internal combustion engine is by no means the most important part of it. But in terms of sequence, it's the first part of it. And without it, the engine can't run. So again, it's a valuable part, but the sequence is key and ignition, turn ignition, spark plug, activates the starting mechanism, and then we've got, you know, the internal combustion engine alive, working. Great, fantastic. So your sequence, let's say if we're trying to make toast, would be bread to toaster. When it comes out the toaster, we put butter on the toast, and then we put jam on top of the the butter. If you change some of the sequence, it's not such a big deal, i.e., butter after jam jam before butter let's say fine whatever but imagine if you put the butter and the jam on and then you put the bread in the toaster you know you've got bigger problems there so the concept of sequencing is important even with minor details sequencing it correctly can get you a greater result okay so making sure that you understand that nothing is in a static state and all information works together as part of a system you know, even in something that you would believe to be dead, it would work in accordance with things where things need to come before, after, or at the same time of other things. So hierarchy, uh, sequencing. After that, the one that I like to put in is ratios. What is the ratio of this to that? How many of these do I need to this? So this is a good way to say, well, you know, if I'm trying to learn something, uh, how many, if I'm deconstructing something, Let's say I'm deconstructing, deconstructing good football skills. A good footballer passes twice as many times as he shoots for goals. Okay, great. What does that mean? That means that the sequence is, let's say, two to one. So my practice time and what I do with that practice time should be two to one as well. So if you are analyzing hierarchy, systems, and ratios in your deconstructing, 
you're a, you're going to be able to um, understand a thing a lot better. Now, in deconstruction, you also need to consider contextualization. You need to contextualize something so it's appropriate for its intended use. Why are you learning this thing? So a lot of people will follow my advice and deconstruct languages. You know, hierarchy systems ratio, uh, sorry, sequencing ratios. And jump into language learning and start with like days of the week and then colors of the rainbow and all that kind of stuff versus starting with why do I need this? Where do I want to use it? So a lot of people are like, well, I don't need it. I don't need to learn French, but I'd like to travel to France and be able to interact with people there. Great. So as a tourist traveling to France, where are the places where you'll need it? And where are the places where you'd like it? Because your needs you should definitely cover first coffee shops, restaurants, taxis, Ubers, um, things like that. Social events where you're meeting someone for the first time and then can excuse yourself transitioning over to English if possible. Great. That would mean your sequencing would, would come into play, your hierarchies, things like that, your ratios. And it means that your actions are going to be directed more to appropriate times. So this, this concept of just applying everything everywhere, no doesn't work like that so be sure to analyze your context once you've got that and you've you've correctly deconstructed these things um, you could even say that mnemonics you know putting things in your memory using those mental pictures and things like that um, mnemonics is part of the deconstruction because you're literally tying it to pieces of information in your head you're breaking it down to smaller sizes etc so your reconstruction is literally you practicing the very activity you are trying to produce. So if you want to practice speaking in a French coffee shop, you literally need to make the focus of your practice you speaking the sentences that you need. Role play the dialogues. Um, isolate sentences, right? So for example, the hello, how are you sentences that you need, isolate them and repeat them. Do repetitions Add some stress to it. You know, once it's comfortable for your working memory, because ultimately working memory is the bottleneck of all um, your capacities mentally. And so if your working memory is overrun, no bueno. You need to find a way that you are practicing and stretching your working memory so that the next time it comes back, your working memory is stronger for it. So work at your working memory's capacity currently. It will increase with more familiarity. The more you can kind of thread this data together and then sleep, you'll come back the next day and it'll be a lot more natural. And you take it out and you, and you use it again. And so what we're doing is we're ultimately trying to move information from the working memory, which is largely governed by, you know, functions of the neocortex and the hippocampus, transferring long, a short-term memory into long-term memory. Um, and once it's like really ingrained within us, it becomes second nature, it becomes automatic muscle memory. And that's really, um, much further back in the brain, part of the basal ganglia, like knee jerk reactions and stuff like that are not governed by working memory. So this is the way that we automate it. Basically we automate knee jerk reactions by doing this, which means our working memory needs to have played with it and been familiar with it for so long. So the best ways to do this are to to practice what you're doing in terms of a reconstruction slowly, smoothly, and increasing the speed that you're doing it as well. 
um, increasing the stress that you're under as well. And so bypassing the working memory, very important. So automating the working memory in every regard. If we're talking about a physical skill that we're trying to automate so that our body just moves without our decisions in the correct ways and it largely becomes intuitive. We're literally programming the intuition in whatever regard we want. So in this way, we are reconstructing and we're practicing our reconstruction small. Focus on regressions that are going to give you lots of successes and familiarities. So smaller sizes, Go slower, give yourself more time to come out with it, but fluently, all of it must be connected and natural, okay? There's big stoppages, big breaks. I want you to understand that it's kind of like you're practicing, rehearsing for a scene in a movie, and every five minutes you have to stop. You know, you're never going to um, produce the entirety of it because your brain is going to stop and start and stop and start. If you practice like that, that's what's going to happen. However you practice is how you're going to actually produce so the reconstruction is governed mainly by isolate it first. Go slow, right? Once you're comfortable with it and you'll feel your working memory is comfortable with it, like start integrating. And once you can start, once you've integrated it to a, a large enough size, you can start to simulate it. Practice it as if you were in those real life situations, okay? And largely you can do this um, alone, alone. So people think that they need to uh, practice speaking only with people. No, a large part of your speaking can be done on your own by just uh, programming your working memory and then bypassing it because those, those sentences are going to be much more automatic and when they come out, they're going to feel more natural and um, more like you don't need to think about what you're saying. You can just speak. And that's largely how this mechanism works as well. So we're bypassing the working memory by first deconstructing and, and creating schema, as we've talked about before. Um, and then usually when we do this as well, then we'll reconstruct and try and pull it out of the memory, right? The more times we do this, the better for our conversion from short-term to long-term memory. Because we're literally telling our brain, I want to use this, 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 and the brain will respond to it. Um, and putting sleep in between your attempts at deconstruction and reconstruction is uber important. Even if it's just a nap, uh, studies show that napping actually helps solidify memory, long-term memory, a lot more than more study time. So if you're not putting in a good night's sleep in between your study sessions, let's say you're doing just a day of study, putting in regular sleeps, little naps, 30 to 60 minutes, Great, fantastic. That's going to help out a lot. So after that, there's a concept basically that we need to talk about, which is uh, simulations should be something with consequences. That is stress. Put some stress in there. So if we're talking about bypassing the working memory, there are a few different types of stress that you can put in. So number one is um, the working memory is largely visually um, visual-spatial. It's kinesthetic, it's auditory, and it's linguistic, okay? So what do I mean by all of that? Well, it's visual. So if I can distract my eyes with something, it's audio. If I can distract my ears with something, it's linguistic. If I can distract my ears with speech and language, and then it's physical, as in if I can distract my, my brain, my working memory with a physical action. So a couple of examples are if I'm 
coaching people to to drill something with martial arts, for example, a physical movement. I'll get them to um, play a movie and repeat all the dialogue that's that's in the movie as they hear it while they're busy training something. Um, I'll get them to have to explain what they're doing on another person. You know, and say, and now I'm going to break your guard by doing this movement. And now that you're, you know, and basically close caption their entire uh, movement cycle with speaking so that it's linguistic. And of course, they're hearing themselves. So it's audio. And then they've got all their movements, their visual spatial elements as well. If it's languages, getting a person to repeat a phrase and getting them to juggle at the same time or run around or walk or fold laundry, play solitaire. These are all components of stress. And then one of the biggest stresses that we can have is actually a social stress. So, for example, having to perform these these skills that you're training um, amongst groups of people. So that can be quite daunting as well. And I would only attempt that if you were comfortable with certain levels of stress on your own. Okay. So it's this idea of programming in stress. And, And if you can actually program in and get good repetitions of stress in your personal practice, under similar conditions of stress that you would experience underneath performance circumstances, what does that mean? That means that largely your performance under the real life circumstances are going to be largely um, all taken care of. They're going to be automatic. So once again, this is part three of the learning series where we're focusing on the actual peri-learning stage, the mid-learning stage. We broke it down into two sections, the deconstruction and the reconstruction. We talked about the deconstruction in terms of hierarchy, sequence, and ratios. And we broke hierarchy down into how big is something and how valuable is something. All right. Then we went on to the reconstruction where it comes down to working memory reps. Okay. And the more quality reps that these are, the better sleep's role in these reps as well as stress's role in these repetitions as well. Um, and so it's not this, this blind belief in rote repetition Um, you can increase or decrease your ability, your capacity to activate different neurotransmitters as well, depending on your emotional connection to these things. So remember to, with all of this, make it something that's enjoyable, pleasurable, it has emotion connected with it. Emotions of interest, curiosity, excitement, and joy, and pleasure, or fear, all of those are going to help stimulate a better neural growth so that's it for this episode. In the next, in the next, in the final part of the learning series, I'll be going through the post-learning phase of the formula. I hope you enjoyed this one. This has been thought architecture, and uh, it is my wish that I largely hope that you share this, you find value in it, and you share it, and you start a valuable conversation. Remember, engage with people. Have a great day.